Hey, everyone, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you get an update as soon as the next episode is ready. And don't forget, you can listen to all seven episodes of Dear Franklin Jones ad-free right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to DearFranklinJones.com and use the promo code JONES for one month free. It's a sunny afternoon in 1979. Franklin Jones walks onto the lawn of his sanctuary in Northern California. Before him sit hundreds of his followers awaiting a big announcement. Jones carries a hand-carved walking staff, walks slowly to the front of his congregation. He looks striking, circular white cap, collared white shirt, white pants, like a priest from some ancient order, or like someone emulating one. Jones gets up on a raised platform and makes the announcement. His followers will no longer call him Franklin. He's no longer some guy from New York or your spiritual buddy. Not anymore. Now, his followers must call him Da, which in Sanskrit means the giver. For many, this is the moment when Jones goes from being a teacher to something else. I am the heart who arms the space, who is the right and left. I am the heart who stands between the arms, who seems the double mind until I'm known, who keeps the body living while the mystery survives. And when all things have turned to me, my instant will be this, that seems the dark and wordless death or underground, and still I am the heart. A few years later, my parents and I join his congregation. My parents attend classes with other members, read his books, listen to his tapes, poster our house with his picture. By the mid-80s, Jones has about a thousand followers. He had set up publishing houses and study groups in the UK, Germany, Canada, Japan, Malaysia, all over. These members, including my parents, donate 10% of their income to the group. And this money, as well as donations from wealthy followers, is used to buy property in Northern California as well as an island in Fiji that had belonged to Raymond Burr. You know, Perry Mason. The group buys the island for $2.1 million. That would be about $5 million today. Only about 40 of Jones' followers live there regularly. As for Jones, he's there part of the year, the rest of the time, at a sanctuary in Northern California. But there's something else that happens right around this time. Something that doesn't have to do with Jones or his group, not directly, but it totally alters the way Americans see these New Age religious groups. Give me your attention. At any moment, and you will receive this grace. I had seen how something that started out to make the world a better place made lives so horrible you can't imagine. I didn't know how to address the media or how to address what was happening to us. It was very shocking. We were so riveted on having a teacher who who had such a, a radiant presence. But I'm not a me, you see. I literally am you. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. This is Dear Franklin Jones. The lone American Air Force transport plane was parked all morning far across the runway, receiving victims of the massacre. Some had pillows beneath their heads. 
Some died alone, separated by own families until the end. In the late 70s, another religious group called the People's Temple had become pretty well known. It was run by a charismatic, progressive pastor named Jim Jones. And just to be clear, he's not related to Franklin Jones. When the People's Temple started, Jim Jones preached against racism, advocated for communal living. Not so bad, right? But then things started to change. The group bought a remote parcel of land in South America, in the jungles of Guyana, where Jim Jones promised they would found a socialist paradise, a sanctuary. But soon, outsiders got suspicious. And Jim Jones was accused of human rights abuses. Eventually, a congressman from California named Leo Ryan chartered a plane to go down to Jonestown, see things for himself. Which is when everything blew up. The delegation arrived, there was a confrontation, some group members defected, and Jim Jones dispatched men to kill the defectors, as well as the congressman and other members of the delegation. Then he mixed a fatal cocktail of Valium, cyanide, and other drugs into grape punch. He called his followers together and instructed them to drink it. This recording from the last hour of his followers' lives is known as the death tapes. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. In the background, throughout the tape, you can hear kids crying. But in spite of all of that I've tried, a handful of our people, with their lives, have made our life impossible. There's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today. Over 900 people died. It was the largest mass suicide in American history. Jonestown essentially broke the spell of these New Age communities. Looking for a spiritual leader wasn't cool anymore. It was dangerous. One of the primary aspects of the negative meaning I gave to the word cult was this was the exclusiveness of the cult. The words of married people sometimes create a cult with one another. They get married and they go off together and they're never heard from again. <laughs> So fast forward six years to 1984, Franklin Jones has gained more followers and more power. Here's a charismatic leader who's changed his name, marries multiple women, nine at one point, requires his followers to contribute a percentage of their income to the group. Like Jim Jones, Franklin Jones builds a remote compound in the jungle in a foreign country and invites his followers to move there. And then Franklin Jones also becomes front page news. In 1985 and 86, former members filed two lawsuits against Jones. The lawsuits accused Jones and his group of false imprisonment, fraud, involuntary servitude, and physical and sexual assault. I heard a little about these lawsuits as a kid. As members, we were taught to dismiss the defectors, as they were called, as paranoid and anti-religious. We were told that women who filed these allegations of assault had actually wanted to be with Franklin Jones. Plus, at that point, Jones's group had money, and some members believed the lawsuits were about cashing in. But I mean, saying that women who allege assault wanted it? 
Some of the former members I spoke with really did seem so hurt and in some ways even damaged by the experience. Either way, there's got to be more to the story than what I had heard growing up. So I find the lawyer listed on the court filings for one of the lawsuits, Ford Green. Ford tells me to meet him at his office in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. Uh, Jones ran that thing with, a, with an iron hand. Ford's gone after a lot of major cults, and for him, it's more than a job. In the 70s, his sister joined a cult called the Moonies, and Ford went to get her out. And before he did, he actually ended up joining for a bit. Later, he became a deprogrammer, helping ex-cult members regain a sense of self. I came across a newspaper profile of Ford from this time, the headline, The Cult Buster. So an ex-member of Franklin Jones's group named Mark Miller contacted Ford, saying he wanted to sue Jones. And when Ford started investigating, he was not impressed. He was just an asshole who was a narcissist that had had a good gift of gab and got a bunch of people in the mid-60s who were open and spiritually searching uh, to start to follow him. In the formal allegations filed against Jones, Miller had said that after he joined the group, he was forcibly separated from his girlfriend, Julie Anderson. Anderson was a former Playboy centerfold. Later, she became one of Jones's nine wives. Miller also said that while he was a member, Jones commanded his followers to perform sex acts meant to demean them. They were told to urinate or defecate on each other. And his lawsuit alleged that members were subjected to what's described as dildo assaults. Not a phrase I'd ever come across. There's more. Around the same time, there's that other lawsuit, the one that involved the wife of a high-ranking member of the group, who accused Franklin Jones of assault and keeping her on his island against her will and asked for $5 million in damages. And remember, while all this is unfolding, my parents are a part of the group. At this point, I was about a year old. My mom says she read about the allegations in the paper, but that the group dismissed the claims. And my parents did too. They believed in Jones. So one of the things that I think is important for this documentary is that, like I was saying about the record earlier, like we want there to be a portion of this documentary that looks at that, you know? I think the community shied away from it. Whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. When you say the community shied away from it. Yeah, Ford's calling me out here for using the language of the group. I said community because that's what we called ourselves. Well, it just, it reflects a lack of understanding because the presumption is that uh, the community was uh, was a free, voluntary community. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It was mm -hmm. a cult. So he's saying that even the way I'm asking the question, it shows how much I've been manipulated. When the lawsuits are filed, journalists begin to investigate Jones's group. So, you know, as a, as a journalist, you know, when there's something happening, uh, like, a, say, a crime scene or something, <laughs> what do you do? Well, you go talk to the neighbors. This is Don Latin. Back in the 80s, he was a reporter for the San Francisco Examiner. He wanted to figure out if there was any truth to these allegations, and since the scandal seemed to concern Jones's life on this island in Fiji... The closest thing to talking to the neighbors was to fly all the way to Fiji and to go to the neighboring island, which is Vanuamblavu. Colts were kind of Don's beat. He'd written about Jim Jones, and he'd been looking into Franklin Jones for a while. Don says after the lawsuits became public, his editors got wind of a rumor that maybe Julie Anderson, the playmate, was also being held on the island against her will. 
And I mean, it was the kind of story that they loved right. at the Examiner. So Don asked the group for permission to visit. He wants to interview Jones and see if these allegations are true. He embarks on the long journey to Jones's island. When Don gets there, he does walk around interviewing people, meets Julie Anderson, Miss September, who says no, she's not being held against her will. That's just a tabloid rumor. Jones is also on the island at the time, but Don's not allowed to see him. Don goes to sleep that night, and then in the morning, members of the group tell him he can't leave, that the sea is too dangerous. And they said, we'd like you to write the article here. And we, we, you, we can, you can actually transmit it from here. And then that's when I felt like we maybe we were being kept against our will on this island. Now he says he's panicking, thinking maybe this trip was a terrible idea. And as this is going on, the U.S. Embassy in Fiji gets wind of the allegations and sends a plane to the island to check things out. And Don gets a ride out. The next day, his story's front-page news in San Francisco. I spoke to a member of the group about this. They say that chartering a boat at the wrong time could have been fatal, that the group might have been held responsible if Don got hurt. Either way, other than the boat issue, Don says that not much happened on the trip. There were no followers locked in cages or raucous sex parties, just a couple dozen skinny, vegetarian, New Age types meditating and hanging around. Even U.S. embassy officials were quoted as saying the island, quote, seemed nice. But reporters continued to look into the group. James Steinberg is that longtime member I spoke with before about the early days of the group. I also talked to him about the allegations against Jones. And pretty much all the, the difficulty we've had has all come from former devotees. I mean, that's how it is. People that are disgruntled because they were hurt. Responding to the media about these allegations was especially tough for James because Jones asked his followers to publicly defend him. But Jones himself wouldn't respond or address anything about the lawsuits directly. And those allegations about sexual assault and false imprisonment, James still thinks they're untrue. According to him, when people first got involved with Jones, they were open-minded, young, willing to try anything. And uh, it was easy to get hurt when the community was as, as much of a free and open place because if you got too close to something and you weren't ready for it, then you could get spun out. According to James, some people did get upset, but over stuff they'd voluntarily done, they left. And some of them, to get back at Jones, they filed lawsuits. When the first lawsuits were filed in 1985, James says they never fathomed Franklin Jones could become a national news story or be compared to Jim Jones. I feel like uh, we were very young in 1985. I mean, 1985, I'm born in 51, so I'm like 34. I'm probably for my birthday. I'm 33. I'm your age. And I didn't know, I mean, you, you would know much more because you're in the media. I didn't know how to address the media or how to address what was happening to us. It was very shocking. Not long after Jones left for Fiji, the Today Show contacted the group about filming a series, and they agreed. Thanks, Willard. Religious cults usually come and go without too many people taking notice of them, but occasionally one comes along that lasts a long time, long enough to attract a lot of people to it. A story that too often ends in the headlines. Boyd Matson reports this morning on a religious cult he feels people should know more about before they get involved in it. Morning, Boyd. Good morning, John. Boyd Matson is a journalist. He lives in a loft in downtown Fort Worth. 
The walls are covered with photographs of the African savanna, indigenous masks from his travels. Boyd himself is an L.O. Bean checkered shirt kind of guy, silver hair. He'd been working at NBC for a few years when he heard about Franklin Jones. And he says at first, he was open-minded about the whole thing. I grew up around uh, an evangelical church. So I was familiar with people having a fervor for a religious belief. And I didn't hold that against anybody, whether I believe it or not. But then he started to listen to Jones's sermons. Because we wanted to understand who Franklin Jones was, where he came from. And we began to listen to earlier recordings. I think they were on, he had recordings out on vinyl. He certainly had audio cassettes out. And there, were, there was a lot of video that I saw that looked kind of like homemade VHS tapes, the old kind of videotape. Give me your attention. At any moment, and you will receive this grace. It is always pouring through this body-mind, which is no longer a person, you see. There's nobody here, no Franklin Jones, nobody like you, you see. It's not here anymore. Totally absent. What a miracle, what a wonder. I am he, I, I am God. I am the adept in our generation. What a, an amusement that should happen in precisely this form. But, but I heard I his changing message, and I began to think, well, he's a, he's a guy promoting himself, and he's trying to get followers that will do anything he says and kind of turn their lives over and let him run them and take a lot of their money. Boyd, James, Jones... They're all white, middle-class baby boomers from the same cultural background. They watched the Beatles visit the Maharishi in India on TV, sang along to George Harrison's My Sweet Lord. But Boyd also had direct experience with the fallout of the Jonestown massacre. Two of his colleagues, a reporter and a cameraman, were actually among those murdered when that government-backed delegation visited Jonestown and was attacked. So I had seen how something that started out to make the world a better place made lives so horrible you can't imagine for the people involved. And for Boyd, listening to those tapes of Franklin Jones felt like a flashback. And here's Franklin Jones taking some of his people to Fiji. We'll get away, we'll make a compound that uh, the outside world can't hear what we're doing because they misunderstand what we're doing. And I didn't know where Franklin Jones fell on that scale, but I saw components that said, this isn't going to end up with people just having a nice sex party at the end and then going home and going back to their normal lives. Boyd spent a day with Franklin Jones's followers in California. This is a group called the Johannine Dice Communion. It's headed by a man named Doc Freejohn. There are about 1,000 active members, mostly in California. The church says they have another 20,000 on their mailing list receiving church publications. The question, of course, with any cult is, are the members just practicing religion outside the mainstream, or are they being brainwashed? Some and like Don, he says that at first, they were pretty welcoming, showed him around, did sit-down interviews. But when Boyd asked to interview Jones, he was stonewalled. I did think that was a little weird that Dafri John wouldn't communicate with the outside world because I thought he'd made so many videotapes and in the beginning he wanted publicity to get people aware of him. I thought this is a reversal of position based on the lawsuits and what was going on at that point. I didn't think he was so private before he went off to Fiji and started hiding from some of his followers. 
But that's not how the group saw Boyd's requests. James Steinberg says Boyd and his crew showed up to the group's sanctuary in Northern California and acted like they had the run of the place. They want to know what was in that building. Well, that was a very set-apart temple that we didn't even go in, except on a very special occasion. They wanted to go in with cameras. We said, you can't go in. And so instead of, like, making them feel like we're really opening up everything to them, now it was, well, we have hidden stuff. As he dug into reporting, Boyd says more former members came forward with stories about Franklin Jones spreading STDs, filming his followers having sex. Boyd says that the group had a story about how Jones had touched a woman who had back problems. And at that moment, how lightning shot out of his fingertips. Little burn marks scarred the woman's back. According to the group, Jones healed her. Boyd says he found this woman, interviewed her, heard a totally different story. There was one of these sex parties, and Franklin Jones was actually having sex with her at that point from behind, and he burned her with his cigarette on the back is what it was. It was not lightning. It was uh, lucky strikes. In the Today Show episodes, Franklin Jones's followers passionately refute these kinds of allegations. They say it's all hysteria targeted at religious groups in the wake of Jonestown. At one point, Boyd asks whether Franklin Jones is similar to Jim Jones. Then you hear two of his followers. It happened in America. He's not Jim Jones. He is not a bad person, manipulating and exploiting person. That is a terrible thing to say. And we're not like everybody else. Good. I don't want to be like everybody else. Give us a break. Leave us alone. Who cares? Boyd's story airs, and it's pretty damning. Supports many of the allegations and questions whether or not Franklin Jones's group is a cult on national TV. The group's plan to set the record straight totally backfires. After that, they kind of close themselves off to the outside world. Both of the lawsuits result in out-of-court settlements. None of the plaintiffs would talk about how much money they were paid. Today, opinions about Franklin Jones tend to fall into two camps. Don Latin, the reporter, calls them the alarmists and the apologists. The alarmists, like Ford, believe that Franklin Jones is a dangerous cult leader. But the apologists, like my parents and James and pretty much everyone else I grew up with, dismiss the allegations of assault as the work of cult busters like Ford Green and over-the-top media coverage. This has always been hard for me to understand. Why would Thomas and Kathleen, new parents, my parents, decide to join a group that had been accused of these kinds of things. It wasn't... But did you and Thomas ever talk about it? Did you ever just, like, do you remember ever being like, is there something, like ever having a conversation about the sexual stuff? Because it was a big deal. It was on the front page of the Chronicle for multiple days. Did it just never come up? I'm just thinking that we were so riveted on having a teacher who who had such a, a radiant presence. So that kind of overshadowed the aspect that he was being accused of sexuality with uh, somebody's wife. When she pauses, I can tell my mom is searching for a way to explain what her thought process was. It was known 
that the guru would interfere with people's lives for the sake of trying to help you see what you react to and then how you might practice with that reaction or that reactivity. A lot of women in the community were really hot to sleep with the guru. And and I know the newspapers were very, I, I do, I, I remember how sensational the reporting was. But that's not unusual for the newspapers. And I'm not trying to protect him. I'm just telling you what, what I felt at the time. And Thomas felt about the same, chalked the sordid headlines up to puritanical American society, which was supposedly judging Jones for not being a chaste, saintly figure like the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa. I didn't choose to be in this group, like my mom and dad. I'm also not an outsider, like Ford or Boyd or Don. Maybe if I were, it'd be easier to judge Jones's character. Because there's another part of the story. All those crazy descriptions of what happens when you're around this guy. I've experienced it. Met Franklin Jones face to face. And the truth is, for years, I would have done anything for him. That's next time. Dear Franklin Jones is reported and produced by me, Jonathan Hirsch, along with Ashley Cleek and Annie Aviles. Our associate producer is Nora Lind. Our senior producer is John Asante. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelet. Special editorial guidance from Peter Clowney. Thanks to the great sound engineers Casey Holford and Eric Jorgensen. Original music by Ray Lynch. Dear Franklin Jones is a production of Stitcher. Hey, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Dear Franklin Jones. Don't forget, all seven episodes are available now, only on Stitcher Premium. To sign up, go to DearFranklinJones.com and use the promo code JONES for one month free. Stitcher. You can think of household name episodes as lifelines when you're stuck in a boring conversation. Need to change the subject? Tell them the secrets behind Victoria's Secret. Or how a single lie turned KFC into a Japanese Christmas tradition. It was lie. No. But, uh, <laughs> I still regret that. Did you know Panera opened cafes where customers could pay whatever they wanted? That before it was a hippie car, the VW Beetle was created by Nazis. Hitler built a city for the Beetle? <laughs> like the hippie beetle? <laughs> you can talk about how LaCroix, Crocs, Carhartt, and Canada Goose all became surprisingly cool. 
and wow your friends with stories of TGI Friday's wild early days as one of the first singles bars. I'd be standing at the bar on Fridays and say, hi, darling, I own this place. That seemed to work. I'm Dan Bobkoff, and I host Household Name from Business Insider and Stitcher. We make this show so you have something to talk about. Subscribe to Household Name for surprising stories about famous brands. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Household Name, brands you know, stories you don't.